please, to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 16. It's nice to sing all five verses of that hymn. It's, uh, this doesn't have anything to do with the message, but, but one of my favorite movies of all time is a, is a war movie called A Bridge Too Far. I don't know if you ever saw it or not. But it's, uh, it, it's a very accurate um, depiction of a long, basically forgotten World War II battle called Operation Market Garden. After D-Day, which of course everybody remembers, the landings at Normandy, the Allies' big plan was to uh, get into Germany and, and, and finish the war and have everybody home by Christmas in 1944. And uh, so they devised this plan called Operation Market Garden where they dropped uh, 35,000 paratroopers behind the German lines and their job was to take and hold all of the bridges so the cavalry could just make a quick run into into Germany, and of course, this it, it, it didn't work. It almost worked, and of course, that's where the title of the movie comes from. I think we went a bridge too far. But anyway, at the very end of the movie, the, the Germans are coming in to capture the British soldiers who remain, and, and they're sitting there singing that hymn. And, uh, and, I, and as I recall, that is actually an accurate historic detail, that that, that actually happened just like that. But So... But in, they, all you hear is the first verse of it. But, but the five verses are, are amazing. If you read through the, to bring it back to church now, the five verses of that song are, are just terrific. Uh, I know when Chris put the numbers up today, we had to print that number out, which means we hadn't really sung it before. Uh, we have to make sure we keep that one in fairly regular rotation. That's an awesome hymn. All right, there you go. There's your history lesson, movie recommendation. And, and song history all in one. Now, to the Bible. Here we go. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 16. Let me pray, and let's go right into it. Our Father in heaven, Lord, what we have here before us now is the Lord answering the question, who can be saved by showing who cannot be? And Lord, we pray that just as it appears to have been your intent to show that men cannot justify themselves, we pray that that would be clear here today and that we would recognize that while it seems impossible then for anybody to be saved, oh, it certainly is possible because with you all things are possible. And you did the thing That makes it possible for men to be saved. Not we ourselves. Nothing we can bring adds any merit to our own case. We are hopeless, every one of us, sinful and falling short before you. But you did what was necessary to make it possible that through faith in you, Lord Jesus, and only through faith in you, can there be eternal salvation. And thank you, Lord, that your love caused you to do it. By your power, you did it. And now we just sit here today and and glory in it. And I pray if there's anyone here today 
who needs true eternal salvation and the assurance of it in their heart, that they would find it in the hearing of your word and in faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. I'll read through verse 26. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go. Sell what you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And I say, again I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Now, the discussion doesn't end with that, but that's all we'll have time to cover today. But it really continues to the end of the chapter and all the way through the parable in the beginning of chapter 20. So the subject matter for next week, Lord willing, will be verse 27 to the end of the chapter and and on into chapter 20 to cover that parable, which is an elaboration, a teaching given to explain what he says at the end of verse uh, uh, chapter 19 and verse 30. So, here we go. The word tells us that someone comes to him and says, good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? There are parallel accounts of this passage in the Gospel of Mark and in the Gospel of Luke. There's not a whole lot they're, they're almost virtually identical in all three Gospels. There's not a whole lot to add by looking at the other two, but in this opening, there is one interesting detail that Mark's account of this offers that uh, the, the other ones don't, which is that this young man actually came running and knelt down in front of Jesus when he said this. So to just get that full picture in your mind where it says here, now behold, one came and said to him, Mark tells us that this man came running, you know, Lord, Lord. 
and then he gets down on my knee, his knees, which I'm not going to demonstrate for you, and, uh, and, he, and he says to him, what good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? The question itself reveals some things. It reveals some things that Jesus notices and like kind of hits on in his response to try to challenge this young man. First of all, let's give credit where it's due. The fact that the young man is desirous of eternal life is good. And the fact that he realizes that eternal life can only come from God is good. And the fact that he realizes that Jesus is the one who can point him to that is good. Those are good things, right? I mean, all of that is important and true, right? So, so give, give uh, acknowledge what about it is right. However, he comes and he calls Jesus good teacher, and then he says to him, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And there are two words in that sentence that set off Jesus' entire response. Do you know what two words they are? One of them is good, and what's the other one? Do, that's right. Good and do. Or if you put them together, do good. File that in the back of your mind, because towards the end of my message, if I make it where I intend to go in time, that phrase, do good, will come up again. But those are the two words that set up the challenge here. Those are the two words that really need to be addressed in this young man's mind if he really wants to understand what the true path to eternal life is. And so Jesus' response addresses it. But before I get into that, just a quick explanation of each one. The word good is a word that obviously in English and in Greek, which this is translated from, can be used in both a relativistic and absolute sense. Most commonly in our talking to each other, we use it in the relativistic sense. And by the way, let me point this out right up front too, where he says, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And Jesus responds by saying, why do you call me good? No one is good. You see all the, wor- the uses of the word good. There's no word trickery there. It's all the same word. Does, any- does anyone in the room have a, a relative, uh, an aunt or a cousin or someone named Agatha in their family? Anyway, that's a, that's a word that's not, uh, that's a name that is like, I guess, out of use or whatever. But it's a really good name, literally, because, literally, because the word agathos means good. And that's, that's the word that is used every time here. So it's not like, it's not like at the end of the Gospel of John when uh, Jesus says to Peter, do you love me, using one word for love, and Peter responds, yes, you know, Lord, that I love you, using a different word for love. And so the whole concept of love gets challenged because there's different words for love. There's nothing like that here. The word good is the common word agathos. But what makes this tricky is that word agathos in Greek or the word good in English can be used in both a relativistic and absolute sense. Even in the Bible, it's used both ways, right? A lot of times we'll get maybe just a little too pious and a little sanctimonious when we'll say to someone, boy, he's a good guy, 
oh, that's a good lady right there, and we'll turn around and say, no, the Bible says no one is good. Listen, just chill out a little bit on that. We're using, it, we're using it in the relativistic sense, which is okay. I don't know if you realize this or not, but Acts chapter 11, 24 actually says of Barnabas that he was a good man. It doesn't mean that he was sinless. You know, obviously, it just means that he was a good guy. In, in, in relative to his fellow man, he was a good man. When the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 5 that he's talking about how Jesus died for sinners, he says, for a good man one might dare to die, right? He's obviously using the word good in the relativistic sense because there are no absolutely good people, right? The same Apostle Paul, two chapters earlier, quoting from the Old Testament, wrote, there is none who does good, no, not one right? So that's where this comes up. This man comes up and he says to Jesus, what good thing shall I do? And I'll come to the word do in a minute. What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So Jesus responds and says, why do you call me good? There is no one, no one is good, but one that is God. Now, Jesus is not trying to confuse the subject of his own deity with this statement at all. We know that Jesus is God, but the deity of Christ and the oneness of the Father and Son and the concept of the Trinity are not what is good here what, or, or what is uh, being challenged here. What the issue is at hand is that this guy is saying, what can I do, good teacher? What good thing can I do so that I can have earn, basically, eternal life. So Jesus knows, being the wise teacher that he is, it's one of those Jesus being Jesus moments. Again, Jesus responds to him by asking a question that, by inference, challenges his concept of good. Because good can be relativistic, and good can also be absolute. Now, when I say to my daughter, you're a good girl, I'm being relativistic. But when I speak of God being good, I'm speaking of a characteristic of who he intrinsically is. When I speak of God being good, I am speaking in an absolute sense. I think it was the Promise Keepers movement back in the 90s, I guess it was, that used to that popularized people saying to each other, God is good. And the person would respond by saying, all the time. And then they would say, all the time. And the person would respond back by saying, God is good. You've come across this in your Christian life at some point, right? That's a nice thing. As long as you remember what it means that God is good. Because sometimes we can allow our thinking to think that, here's a nice phrase for you, that God is good means that he does the things that I consider to be good and beneficial to myself. So in that way, God is good. I may struggle, I may mess up, I may make mistakes, but you know what? God is always good. God's going to bring me through it. He's going to bring me out of it. He's going to some way solve my problem and give to me what I want, what I need, whatever. And that is true. Often, that's not a thing to be despised. We can go 
to the Lord. I mean, the good things in our lives that we have are a gift from him. He adds no sorrow to it. Every blessing that we have in life should be counted from the Lord, and we should be thankful for it and share it with others and, and enjoy it in humility and just keep our minds focused on the Lord, you know, as we do, right? But the phrase God is good, if you really stop and think about it, is a fearsome phrase. The phrase that God is good is a phrase that ought to inspire what the Old Testament calls the fear of the Lord, which the book of Proverbs says is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, the whole basis for knowing and understanding anything and everything is the fear of the Lord. And understanding that God is good ought to inspire the fear of the Lord in someone. What God is good truly means, what God is good means in the mind of Jesus in this conversation who says only God is good, he's the only one, is it means that characteristically, intrinsically, and as revealed by every single thing that he says and does, God is holy, God is pure, God is without fault, God is without blemish, God is without any failing whatsoever. God is perfectly holy and righteous and upright in all of his ways, in all of his thoughts, in all of his decrees, in all of his still yet undone things that he has foretold and promised that he will do. He is good in all of them. God was good in the flood in Noah's day. Yes, he was, right? God was good in bringing the children of Israel into the promised land and either slaying or displacing the wicked nations that were there when they came in. God was good in that. God was good when the Babylonians came and took the children of Judah away into captivity. God was good when Jesus, his only begotten son, who is talking here in this conversation, God was good when Jesus was betrayed, beaten, and nailed to a cross. God was good in all of that. God is good to point out to every man and woman on the earth that we are not worthy of him in and of ourselves. He is very, very good in that. Because in so pointing that out to us, his desire is to lead us to repentance and ultimately to faith in his son. And God is good in that he justifies not those who are looking for every good thing that they can do to earn eternal life, but God is good in that he, by his grace, by his sovereign favor towards us that we do nothing to earn or deserve, unmerited favor, that's where that phrase comes from, by his grace, God is good to forgive and cleanse and justify and bring to new life and reconcile to himself and seal unto the day of redemption those who come to faith in Jesus, his son. 
God is good in all of that. (laughs) Furthermore, God is good to fill us with his Holy Spirit. God is good to allow us to go through troubles and difficulties in our lives. God is good to chasten us and discipline us like children when we are wrong and when we are in sin. God was good to take Ananias and Sapphira out of the church in Acts chapter 5. God was good to call out Alexander the coppersmith who caused the Apostle Paul much harm in the Scriptures. God is good to bring down three times sevenfold judgment in the days of the great tribulation which is yet to come on the earth before the Lord Jesus returns. Which is why through tears the Apostle Paul says, even Apostle John says, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Because God is good all the time. All the time, God is good, you see? So it is something we should remind ourselves of, but not in a flippant way. This young man needed to be reminded, you think you can do good to inherit eternal life. Listen, only God is good. The other, what's the other concept that gets challenged in this young man? Is the word do. That goes hand in hand with good because that's what he's looking for, is he's looking for what can I do? And I, I, listen, we're not being, don't be hard on the guy because like I said, he came running to the right place, didn't he? He had the wrong thought in his mind. And he's got a big stumbling block in his heart, as you're about to see. But he did come running to the right place and even knelt down in front of Jesus. So don't be too hard on him. Right? I don't know where it ended up going with this guy. It says he, later on that he goes away sad. But who knows? Maybe, maybe he came around and he got what the message which was really about. But what he wanted was he wanted to do And that's what we can slip into sometimes. The the Apostle Paul wrote very famously that we're saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now, we are his workmanship created for good works, created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of doing good works. Good works have, as you know, if you listen to me for any length of time or read your Bibles, you you know that God saves people by his grace and then uses them to produce good works which bring glory and honor to his name. But those good works have 0% meritorious quality when it comes to earning or keeping salvation. Being saved is entirely the work of God in us because he alone is good. And even our good works that we do in our lives are never, ever, ever anything that we can like take credit for because no matter how many good works a man or woman may do, we are always at best people who have been saved by his grace through faith. So the whole concept of goodness and doing, doing good, 
is challenged here. And this is the way that Jesus challenges it. Right? Because he, he makes the statement, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. But then he goes with it. See the word but? But. Right? And again, Jesus being Jesus. Puts this forward because Jesus being the master soul surgeon is going right after what the heart of the issue is with this young man. He says, if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Jesus can see his heart and see that the young man has a desire for eternal life and that he wants to earn his way in. Keep the commandments. Jesus, uh, the man says back to Jesus, which ones? Which I think is like an eagerness. I mean, this, he wants to get at it. He's eager to justify himself. So Jesus does not correct what he says, but continues to go with it and lays out a list of commandments. Most of them are from the Ten Commandments, not all of them. But here's, here's Jesus using the law for the purpose that the law is really intended to be used. And he says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And I don't know, each of the gospel accounts don't record it in exactly the same order, so... I don't think you can make too much about the order of them right there. But there's something the way Matthew records it that I don't know if it's intended or not, but I can't resist pointing it out. That is like, if you start in the beginning of the list, you're like, okay, I've got that one. And then it gradually like becomes more and more clear as you go through the list. I, I can't justify myself. All right, you might be able to say that you haven't murdered anyone. I certainly hope it's true of everyone in the room here today that you haven't murdered anybody. All right? That would be a very good thing. And that is one of the Ten Commandments. But you know, of course, that the Apostle John, much later than this, wrote in his epistle that if you hate your brother, you're guilty of murder. Right? Then he says you shall not commit adultery. Now, Jesus had taught earlier that even if you look at a woman and lust after her in your heart, you've committed adultery already in your heart to challenge the self-righteous ones who might say, I have never been unfaithful to my spouse. I have not committed adultery. I have kept that commandment. But Jesus says, that's something you can break even in here and in here. Right? So even if this young man could quickly say, never killed anybody, never fell into sexual immorality and violated, I don't know if he was married or not, but never, never violated the commitment that I made to my wife. But then we get a little, little more difficult in the average life to justify ourselves. You shall not steal. Really? You shall not steal anything. Right? You don't, no. You, if you've stolen anything in your life, you've broken God's law. I mean, go back to the time when you were a young child and you were, you, were, you know, uh, maybe more inclined to do things that were foolish and stupid before, but, than you are now, right? 
Did you ever take anything that belonged to a sibling? Did you ever sneak anything that your parents told you not to touch? Did you ever take anything from somebody's school? Did you ever rip something off from a store or from the mall or something? Did you ever steal? There's lots of other ways you can steal. There's lots of subtle ways you can steal, right? Who can really say they've never stolen? Then look at the next one. You shall not bear false witness, which basically means to lie. It's sort of a specific form of lying, but... When you read through the rest of the New Testament, you can certainly understand this to be, to be generically referring to lying. Who can say they've never lied? Honor your father and your mother. To honor your parents includes to obey everything they say to you even when you're young. Who can say they've done that? And then the last one is not from the Ten Commandments, but it's one of those uh, statements from the Old Testament law that seems to be summative of the entire law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, the way that you... Who's your neighbor? In the law, who is your... In the Jewish law, who is your neighbor? Look around. If you can see them, if they're near you, uh, that's your neighbor. Everybody is your neighbor. It's not just the person who lives next to you. It's everybody that you encounter. It's a generic term, basically synonymous with others. Right? Love others as yourself. Have you gone through your whole life and treated every other person you've encountered the way that you would expect and hope that you would be treated? Should not... Should not those two statements be enough to convince anyone, I I have no hope whatsoever to justify myself? Hopefully that does convince you of that. If you're sitting in the room here today and listening to me and going down that list, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, Honor your parents and love your neighbor as yourself. And there, now listen, that's just, that's five of the Ten Commandments and one other commandment. And there's many, many other commandments. The Bible tells us that, remember I was talking about good before? By the definition of good in its absolute sense as it defines and relates to God, if you violated one of those commandments one time, you're not good. By the definition of good, when we say God is good, by that definition of good, you're not good. And so the answer to the question, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? The answer to the question is, there's nothing you can do. And may I say to you, listen to me, listen to me, That's exactly the point that God wants you to get, right? That's what God wants you to derive from that. That is why uh, in the New Testament in Romans chapter 7, verse 7, I printed this inside your bulletins, I believe. uh, It says, the apostle Paul said, I would not have known sin except for the law. And then later, in the book of Galatians, which is like many Romans, the Apostle Paul wrote to them in chapter 3 and verse 24 that the law was my tutor. 
And basically what he means is the law is like my schoolmaster. The law is my teacher. The law teaches me and shows me that I am a sinner in need of Christ. My teacher leading me to Christ. That's the point of his commandments. Now, before you get the idea that the commandments then are bad, that the commandments are actually some kind of weapon, well, they are a tool without question. They're a tool to show us our sinfulness so that our hearts might be pricked, our consciences might be pricked, our, our souls might be disturbed and troubled over the fact that God is good and we're not, which thought should lead you to repentance and soften and open your heart to receive the gospel of Jesus. That's the point. That's the purpose for the law. That's the purpose for the commandments to show you that. But don't leap to the conclusion then that it, since I'm a sinner, it doesn't matter if I murder. It doesn't matter if I commit adultery. It doesn't matter if I lie or steal or dishonor my parents or fail to love my neighbor. I just, this goes a little bit off of what Jesus is talking about, but since we're in the church and we want to understand life in the church as well, kind of in your mind, Hit the pause button on Jesus' words here, and let's take a little diversion. There's a very similar list to this that's actually written to Christians in Ephesians chapter 4. So keep a bookmark here, and I just want you to see something. Because this actually, in the end of it, does hammer home the point that we're making here. But Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4 and verse 25. No, back up to verse 20. Back up to verse 20. Ephesians 4, 20. Now here, we're talking to people. The book of Ephesians is addressed to Christians. The book of Ephesians is written to people who have received the promise of everlasting life through faith in Jesus. So this is not written to the young rich ruler that's kneeling there before Jesus, this is written to those who have repented and believed the gospel and been saved. Verse 20 says, You have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him. Uh, not so learned Christ refers back to a statement in verse 17 where it says, You shouldn't walk the way the rest of the world does. The word Gentiles there being used in its generic sense to describe the world, which is what the word Gentile means, people of the world. So you're not supposed to live your life like the Gentiles, like the rest of the world does. Then verse 20 says, that's not what you learned when you learned Christ. When you learned Christ, if indeed you've heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Right? So if you've come to faith in Christ... What he's saying is, if you've come to faith in Christ, what having a relationship with God through faith in Christ should have taught you is that the old man that you used to be, you need to rip off like a dirty, smelly old garment and put on something new and clean. And the new and clean thing you put on is living for Christ. It still talks about, uh, it says, put on the new man. 
which was created according. In other words, God did all the work of making you a new person and now making you a new person in true righteousness and holiness. Listen, 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 everyone. God did that work when you believed. God made you a new man. God made you truly righteous and holy. He justified you by his grace. He set you apart as holy by his own power. And now you're to put that on in your life. That is, you should walk consistently with it. But, but, watch the rest of it. Therefore, putting on, and this is the part of it that sounds like the, the list that Jesus was saying to the young rich guy, right? Because, therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. So, two, two of the things that Jesus mentioned, don't bear false witness and love your neighbor as yourself, are both like covered in that. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor because we're members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer. Jesus mentioned that. But rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Notice Paul is telling Christians here, do good. This guy came to Jesus and said, What good can I do that I may inherit eternal life? Do you see the difference? Read on to the end of this. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification. Man, if we would all as believers just take this stuff to heart. It would be like what we were singing about before. That the whole world would see that we have nothing in and of ourselves, but they would see all that we do have in Christ. That the life exhibited by the relationships among believers would show that that Christianity stuff that they believe is real because they live it. Oh, that the Christians would put away lying, put away stealing, put away uh, corrupt words out of your mouth and speak edification and impart, impart grace to one another as he's imparted it to you. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God, which is all that, what all that stuff does, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. It has no place in your life as a Christian. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Listen to this. This is the, the key at the very end. Even as God in Christ forgave you. Now, when he says, even as God in Christ forgave you, is he talking to people who are trying to justify themselves? No, he's talking to, he's talking to people who know that they can't justify themselves and they are utterly dependent upon the forgiveness of God in Christ. And that, back in Matthew, is what that young guy who came to Jesus did not understand and did not have. Right? The man that Jesus is addressing in Matthew chapter 19 is very different from the people that are being addressed in Ephesians chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 19, there's a man saying, what can I do that I may earn eternal life? In Ephesians chapter 4, it is, you have by grace received eternal life, therefore do these things. Do you understand the difference? Do you understand the difference? 
In this one, I am the worker. I am the earner. I am the worthy one. In this scenario, in Ephesians, I am unworthy. Christ has done all the work. In humble gratitude to him, I will put off the old man and put on the new. Because, as the song said, I want the whole world to see that I'm nothing without him. Yes? Do you understand? Do you understand, Christians? Let's go. I I love the distinction because the list of things that it says to do is so close. But who it's addressed to is very different. You see? Now, go back to Jesus' words. Matthew 19. See, look what the guy says in verse 20. You see verse 20? Look at the astonishing statement in verse 20. And listen, he, oh man, he came, he came to Jesus. He came to Jesus. He was looking for the right thing. He was looking in the right place. But Jesus, with all of his skill and insight and care, revealed what the real problem was. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? Right? Now, is there, is there anyone here today who has kept all of these things from their youth? Is there anyone here today who thinks that this young man kept all of these things from his youth? Now listen. Listen. In the relativistic sense of the word good, maybe he did. Like, He probably wasn't a murderer. He probably wasn't an adulterer. But had he never had a hateful thought or a lustful thought? In the relativistic sense, he probably was very honorable towards his parents. Sure, he disobeyed when he was young. Sure, he had bad thoughts, resentful thoughts towards his restrictive parents, like most children do at some point in his life. Was he good to his neighbors? Was he good to other people around him? Was he polite? Was he kind? Was he helpful when he could be? So when he says, I've kept all these things from my youth, it's possible that he's, what he's thinking is, I mean, he's not just standing there blatantly, outwardly lying to Jesus, I don't think. I think he's thinking of goodness in its relativistic sense. You know? And people do that today. They see the commandments. You can ask them, have you ever broken this, broken this, broken this, broken this, broken this, broken this? And they'll say, well, yeah, sure, I've lied. Yeah, sure, I've disobeyed my parents. Yeah, sure, I've used the name of the Lord my God in vain. But I've never murdered anyone. I mind my business. I don't hurt anybody. I don't bother. And that's what they do is relativistically they justify themselves because they think they stack up and compare favorably with the rest of the world around them. And that's where I think this guy's mind is. 
He thinks to himself, listen, I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a murderer. I'm good to my parents. I'm good to my neighbors. I'm not a liar. I've never really stolen anything, you know? So in, 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 generally speaking, the general course of his life in his mind was good. But that's not the goodness of God. The goodness of God is absolute and perfect. Now, watch how amazingly Jesus reveals this to him. The guy asks, what do I still lack? Jesus said, if you want to be perfect, go and sell what you have and give to the poor. Then you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. What a brilliant response. See, here's the thing. If you want to earn your place with God, you notice that Jesus did not try to say, come on, really, you never lied? Come on, come on. What do you, what, you, know, you know, like he said in the Sermon on the Mount, even if you just had a lustful thought, you know, you've committed adultery. He could have said those things, but he doesn't. Instead, he does this. All right, go sell everything you have and give it to us. See, here's the thing. If you want to justify, justify, justify. If you want to justify yourself before a good God, which Jesus had already said, only God is good. If you want to justify yourself before a good God, then you, like him, have to do all the good that you can possibly do and never fail. And if you have five bucks in your pocket, and there's a guy, your neighbor, over there who has nothing. You could at least give like 250 to him. Right? See, that's the thing. Jesus challenges the notion that, well, see, here's the thing. Before I even get into that, I'm ahead of myself. What Jesus challenges is if you think you can do good and earn your place before God, then you cannot overlook one single possible avenue of goodness in your life because God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. And if you think that, okay, you've never committed adultery. Okay, you've never murdered anyone. Okay, you've never lied. All right. You've, you've never dishonored your parents. Well, every opportunity you've had to do good, have you done it every single time? Now, guess what? Turns out the guy was rich. Right? Now, Jesus is, not, Jesus is not rebuking him for being rich. He does take up in the next section, which it's looking less and less like I'm going to get to today, but he does, which I don't really care about that. He, 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 he does take up in the next section the issue of, of, of being rich a little bit. There's a little, there's a little transition in the thought when you get to verse 23. When he says, assuredly, I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. So we'll address that a little bit. Maybe I'll leave that off for next week. So this is going to be three weeks instead of two. You don't mind, right? Um, But see, here's the thing. The truth of the simple truth of the matter is this. When we think 
that we can do enough good to justify ourselves before God. We haven't even crossed kind of that first divide that needs to be crossed to be brought to the place where conversion and the bestowing of the gift of eternal life can happen. Because that's what the guy's question was. What good thing can I do to inherit eternal life? Well, keep the commandments. I've kept them all. Okay, now go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me. You want to be good? So he's challenging the guy's notion of goodness and he's challenging the guy's notion of doing. You can't do enough good to earn it. You can do enough evil to be kept away from it. And every one of us has. And that's why this man's thinking had to be challenged. Apart from what he says about being rich, which we'll come to, looks like, next week. Understand this if you're here today. God loves you as God loves this young man. As Jesus loves this young man. There's no, I detect no resentment. I detect no anger. I detect nothing but love and a desire to lead this young man to the truth in Jesus' words. Is that not true? I don't see Jesus talking to this man like, uh, like John the Baptist with the crowds at the Jordan River. Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I don't see any of that. I don't, I don't see Jesus uh, taking a whip of cords and overturning all the tables and saying, you've turned my father's house into a den of thieves. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. I don't see Jesus say, uh, referring to his father as being Satan like he does in John chapter 8. There are some very contentious moments where Christ is like, wham, usually with the Pharisees. But I don't see that here. Here's what I see. I see Jesus speaking to this man the way that I'm trying to speak to you. I see Jesus speaking to this man the way Jesus wants to speak to you today. He loves you. He is perfect and he is holy. And you need to understand that you cannot justify yourself before him in and of yourself. You can't earn favor with him through religious works sacraments, baptisms, confirmations, you know, uh, whatever, whatever else. You can't earn it. You can't earn salvation by being good or doing good. If the guy, you know what? The, the truth is, if the guy did go out and sell everything that he had and gave it, there would perhaps still, I mean, well, there's still the issue of all the commandments that he probably didn't really obey, but there could be something else. Listen, when it comes to us, we have sinned. I mean, think about that list. You've lied. You've stolen, right? God has appointed a day when he will judge the entire world in righteousness. That is, everyone in the world will be judged according to his standard of goodness and righteousness, which is absolute. And if you've sinned one time, you're on your way to hell. If you're sitting here today and you want to go to hell, guess what? You don't have to do a thing. I guarantee you, you have already earned your place, as have I. 
However, God's love for you is that he sent Jesus. Listen, listen, listen. God's love for you is that he sent Jesus into the world. When Jesus was in the world, the Son of God, he lived a perfect and sinless life. The only one who ever did was Jesus, the Son of God. And then at the end of his life, you know the story where like they, they betray him and they, they take him and they beat him and they crucify him. It's true that all of that happened, but all of that was at his own offering. He offered himself. He surrendered. He allowed himself to be betrayed and handed over to sinful men. He allowed himself to be judged. He allowed himself to be beaten. And he allowed himself to be crucified because that was his father's will. That was God's way. Listen, listen, listen. That was God's way of dealing with your sin. When Jesus bore all that suffering when he was on the cross and he was crucified, he was receiving in his body what is justly deserved to deal with my sin. A violent, painful, extreme, punishing death with all the suffering leading up to it. When Jesus died, he took what you deserved and I deserve. That, listen, God is good all the time doesn't sound very good it was good it was good because sin must be accounted for and sin must be punished if god were simply to allow sin you know what they're all sinners forget it just let them all into heaven that would not be good that would be unjust because sin must be accounted for and dealt with And God did it by making an atoning sacrifice for you. When Jesus died, he took the penalty for your sin. They took his body off of the cross that day, buried it in a grave, and on the third day they went to the grave and the stone had been rolled away because he had risen from the dead. And he is alive right now, right now, right now. Actually, really, as firm as anything as you can touch, Jesus Christ is alive. He is in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, hoping that somebody will listen to this. Just like he wanted the young man to listen. Hoping someone will listen to these words and say, thank you. You did it. I know it's my only chance. It's my only hope. Yes, Lord. I know that I'm sinful. I know that I can't justify myself, save myself. I know I have no case before you, but I believe that you did this thing. I believe you're the Son of God, and I believe that you died for my sins. I believe that you rose from the dead. Save me, Lord. Save me, Lord. Come into me. He promised he would, you know. He said, my Father, he said, we will come and make our home in you. Lord, come in to me. If you're here today and you need to be saved from your sins, you cry out to Jesus. Stop trying to figure out what good thing you can do to make it right with God. There is nothing. Stop trying to cover up for the fact that you've murdered committed adultery, either in your spirit or in actuality. You've stolen, you've lied, you've dishonored your parents, you've you've defrauded your neighbor and broken every other commandment that there could possibly be. 
Stop trying to cover it up. Stop trying to act like it doesn't matter. Stop trying to think like I'm okay because I'm not as bad as the other guy. Stop trying to think I'll just go make a confession or do a sacrament or something else, to, some religious hocus pocus to take a... Stop it! Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. Put your faith in him. Trust in him and he will wash all of your sins away. He will come into you. He will seal you with the presence of his Holy Spirit. And then you will realize that there's no good thing that you do to inherit eternal life. Jesus did what is good so that God could grant you eternal life by his grace when you believe. Come to Jesus. We're going to sing a song in a moment and close. If you're here today and you need Jesus, you need to come to Jesus, I'm going to give you two choices. Ready? Not that my things that I give you matter, but listen. Two things. Number one, you don't need any... Listen, I have taken you really as far as any preacher can take you. With my words, I have tried to bring you right to the point where you realize you can't save yourself and you need Jesus. Number one, sitting right where you are in the silence of your own mind and in your own heart, alone with God, cry out to him and ask Jesus to save you. Or, number two, maybe you don't quite understand it all yet and you still need a little bit of guidance. After we sing this song, I might stand in the back and shake a few hands, but then I'm going to be sitting up here. And if you have some questions you want to get answered, don't go home. Listen. Don't go home today before you're sure that you will inherit eternal life. There's nothing you can do. That's his gift for you. Make sure you understand it and you have it right. Pray yourself and ask him to save you or come at the end and talk to me. God is good all the time. All the time. He's good. Make sure you understand that. Come on, guys. Let's all stand up. Let's sing our last song.